I'm Michael Couture. You're listening to the West Block Podcast. Many of the federal pandemic relief programs that helped millions of Canadians pay their bills have come to an end. But since the pandemic isn't over, starting today, there are new programs in place to help Canadian workers and businesses that continue to be affected by COVID-19. The new benefits target the hardest hit sectors and will be around until May of 2022. Our support needs to be more narrow, more targeted, and less expensive. The hardest hit sectors, tourism and hospitality, will get the most help. A special recovery program will be in place for businesses like restaurants and hotels for the next month, with plans to introduce legislation that will extend it until next May. The Tourism and Hospitality Recovery Program will provide wage and rent subsidies to businesses with a sustained 40% revenue decline over the past year. Other businesses not in those sectors can apply for a similar program with a sliding scale. These other businesses would qualify if they have sustained revenue loss of at least 50% with a subsidy starting at 10%. Business groups were happy with the extension of the benefits, but say the devil really is in those details. The bar is too high and the subsidy too low to, to make a big difference for many businesses that are that are hanging on by their fingernails. As of March 13th, 2022, the subsidy rates for the rest of the programs will be cut in half. The Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit and the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit will remain. The new Worker Lockdown Benefit will replace CRB. It's for workers whose jobs are affected by a public health lockdown and will give employees $300 a week if they aren't already collecting EI. And joining me right now is the Minister of Employment, Carla Qualtrough. Minister, thanks for being here. A lot of these benefits are now much more targeted, but at the same time, your government will be leaving behind thousands of Canadians who were depending on the CRB to pay their bills. What do you say to them? Thanks, Mike, for having me. You know, uh, the reality is, is the economic and public health circumstances have changed from when we put the CRB in place since September of 2020. So we understand with the job numbers where they are, with the unemployment rate where it is, where job vacancies are, um, that we really needed to move to a more targeted approach that really focus on the sectors that haven't recovered and to support workers when they're in a situation of lockdown. Um, We know that these were always intended to be temporary measures and and I would I would just say, you know, it's 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 where we are in the evolution of this pandemic. And it's actually a reflection of how we've succeeded economically in recovering. Now, part of it, another one of the programs is the Canada Recovery Hiring Program. It's being extended. Subsidy is also being bolstered a little bit to 50 percent. But we're still hearing from businesses who are telling us anyways that they're having trouble filling, finding workers to fill those jobs. So Is that program really achieving what it was set out to achieve? Really important question. We've been hearing a lot from businesses about the um, labor shortages they've been experiencing. These labor shortages were, um, were there before the pandemic. And we're really trying to put in place active measures like the hiring program, the wage subsidy that incentivize work um, and aren't as passive, say, as the, the CRB was, which was appropriate at the time. But we think we've moved on. And when you say you think you've moved on, I mean, do you really think that if if they're having trouble finding these workers, that that it's really setting out what it needs to do? Or do you think more needs to happen there? Well, I think it's a combination of a bunch of things. So absolutely, the hiring program is one tool we have. We have got 
we're investing significantly in training. We're, we're encouraging um, businesses to use the wage subsidy. The hiring program is underutilized. And I think that's a matter of us getting the message out that if you want to give people more hours, if you want to hire more people, um, if you want to increase the salary of the people you have on your staff, that's all eligible uh, under the hiring program. So I spend a lot of time putting that message out in my own community because I think businesses don't um, necessarily understand the breadth of the, the, the scope of the criteria for this program. Now, one of the issues that employers could be facing also is the mandatory vaccinations for certain workers, for certain jobs. If an employee does make the decision not to get vaccinated, but it's required for their job, do they or don't they qualify for employment insurance? Again, important question. So if an employer has uh, a clear policy with clear consequences, um, and, and, and it's well understood that non-compliance, so this condition of employment, uh, could lead to dismissal. Um, if they are dismissed, they typically would not be able to access EI for this reasons, because of course, um, a fundamental principle of the EI program is that claimants have to lose their employment, employment through no fault of their own. Uh, and this would be seen typically as a choice. Now, of course, every case is a case-by-case -case basis, certainly not uh, the minister's uh, purview at all to, to arbitrate these things. Um, but as a matter of course, typically they would not be eligible. So how concerned are you when you hear already that lawyers are warning that you could see a great number of challenges here? Uh, and, you know, what are you basing the grounds on which you're saying right now, your assertion that they couldn't collect EI if you are having a lot of lawyers saying that there could be these challenges uh, and, and that it could possibly overrun the system with these challenges? Yeah, I mean, certainly I don't want to weigh in on the legality of this, but we were confident that the Employment Insurance Act um, stating that, you know, basically it says if, if a claimant, so an EI claimant is disqualified or disentitled from receiving benefits because they left their job, um, either they were fired or they dismissed, or I shouldn't say fired, um, as a result of their own misconduct, which in this case would be noncompliance with an existing policy, um, there is grounds for not getting EI. But I, you know, as with any new policy or, or circumstance, this is case by case, this will have to go through the courts or through the Social Security Tribunal, and not my place to weigh in on the merits of any one particular case. So help me try and understand this, because we're dealing with a labor shortage, yet as a government, you're saying yep. that you're comfortable with excluding all of these people um, and, and making sure that they also don't get EI. Um, so how do we sort of square that circle of we need workers, but as a government, you're comfortable with these people being excluded from certain jobs um, and not getting EI? Well, you know, effectively, Mike, we know that vaccines are the most effective tool against COVID-19. And we also don't want people uh, putting fellow employees or fellow workers at risk. We don't want um, workplaces to have to shut down because of a, an outbreak in a workplace. And we announced the details of our mandatory vaccine policy for, for employees of the public service. We are encouraging other businesses to follow suit. And we just think it's good public health policy, but also economic policy to have safe, healthy workplaces. And therefore, we want people to be vaccinated. And right now, we're still in the middle of this pandemic, and we need people to be vaccinated. We need workers to be vaccinated, of course, if they can be.
Yeah. I want to switch gears for a quick second here. Last week, your government introduced a vaccine passport uh, to be recognized, hopefully, by a number of other countries. So what countries is your government in consultation with right now to make sure that it's recognized, especially when you consider that the land border with the U.S. or the, the, the softening of restrictions of the border with the U.S. is coming just at the beginning of November? A lot of Canadians are looking to try and travel. So have we started the discussions with the U.S.? And what other countries will be recognizing our national passport? Well, absolutely. First of all, having a standardized national proof of vaccination based on the Smart Health Canada standard is one way to bolster the credibility, the reliability, and the acceptance of our, what we would call PVC, which is proof of vaccination credentials. Um, we've been working over the past months with a number of international organizations to ensure that these credentials are recognized. We do the same for passports um, to make sure that countries recognize this. We expect um, that all countries that are currently accepting Canadian travelers will accept our PVCs, our proof of vaccination credentials. Um, and, you know, all countries that are currently accepting travelers are accepting all forms of vaccine certification, but that work is ongoing. And I think as the world, uh, which really has a vested interest in, in people moving around and visiting and getting back to whatever normal looks like, um, we're all working together to make sure our citizens can safely travel between countries. On the vaccine passport specifically, how closely are we working with the U.S. and how soon can you say or can we say that they will recognize that vaccine passport? I don't have a timeline for the last part of your question, but we've been working with the U.S. all along. You're talking to an MP who has Point Roberts right as a neighbor, and we're working very closely with the U.S. on this issue. Okay. Minister Qualtrough, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Former Liberal Cabinet Minister Catherine McKenna surprised many political watchers when she decided not to run again in the last election. Now, before she was Infrastructure Minister in the Trudeau government, McKenna was the Minister of Environment, leading Canada's fight against climate change. She's out of politics, but still in the fight against climate change, and now on a more global scale. McKenna is heading to the UN in New York this week, before heading to Glasgow for COP26. That's the UN Summit on climate change. And Catherine McKenna joins me right now. Thanks so much for joining us. And first question, you've left politics, but clearly you haven't left this fight on climate change. Tell me why you think it can be more effective to fight climate change out of politics than inside the corridors of power. Uh, well, look, I think I was pretty clear when I decided to leave that it was to focus on my kids, but also on the fight against climate change. And pollution doesn't know any borders. We have a climate plan here in Canada. Uh, we need to always be doing more, but we've done things like put a price on pollution, uh, phase out coal, make historic investments in sustainable infrastructure, and we need the world to do that. And we need momentum uh, going into COP26 and beyond. So that's really what my focus is, is on. I will always be someone who, who sees climate change as the biggest issue and do whatever I can. On that, you gave a bit of a hint on Twitter uh, in the last uh, few days, last week, um, saying that you have a big initiative coming. Now, it seems to me this would be a great opportunity for you to break this news uh, on our show right now. So uh, why not do that right now? Uh, well, Mike, I'm actually partnering with the United Nations and some other folks, so I am not going to do that, but stay tuned. And it, there will be an invitation to Canadians to participate because I think, I mean, the initiative is intended to show, yes, COP is a moment in time. Um, but people have been taking action on climate change before COP26, and when they tear it all down, people will continue to be taking action. So it's going to be great. Uh, I'm really excited about it, but everyone's just going to have to wait. We're launching next Friday. You can't fault, fault me for trying, I guess. Eh? Uh, so looking ahead to COP26 uh, in Glasgow, Scotland, 
people are already lowering expectations, unfortunately. The reality is that countries are far off their tar targets right now, Canada included. So new reports are showing that Canada won't hit its emission reduction targets. What happened when you were minister and since that has allowed Canada to come up short? Well, okay, so first of all, I think it's really important um, to be clear that we haven't missed our targets. There's a, the targets are a 2030 targets, so we're, we're pretty far away from 2030, and we've already shown the pathway to how we will meet what we set as an initial target in, in 2015, um, reducing emissions by 30%. And the Paris Agreement requires you to ratchet up ambition, so to be more ambitious. So we announced, um, Jonathan Wilkinson, uh, the Prime Minister, announced that we would reduce emissions by 40 to 45%. And we're bringing in new initiatives all the time. Uh, and I think there's some really important work that's being done, including for the oil and gas sector. They have to be part of it. Emissions have to go down from that sector because they're a very significant uh, portion of Canada's emissions. But we're doing things like phasing out the internal combustion engine by 2035. Imagine, like, no cars that will be sold in Canada uh, will have any emissions associated with them. Massive retrofit programs, massive investments in public transit. But we all have to do the work. Um, look, I think COP26, it's going to be hard because uh, we need to see the ambition. Um, you've seen everyone call for it, including uh, Greta, and it can't just be talk, it has to be action. Um, Canada has shown what we're gonna do and we know we need to do more, but every country needs to do that and bring it to the table. That is the whole purpose of the Paris Agreement, everyone doing their part. To your point, you've always said that climate change is all about math, uh, and it's very simple for people to understand that. So. How can Canada really be taken seriously in the climate change fight if we continue to extract oil and gas? Well, first of all, it's a transition and transitions aren't linear and they're not perfect. And so, you know, you can't immediately ma wave a magic wand and say, you know, we're getting rid of oil and gas. People are using, we use oil and gas. Everyone is using oil and gas, but we do need to transition. We need to figure that out. And that's exactly what we're doing. Part of, uh, in this election, the Liberal platform was to tackle emissions from the oil and gas sector. That's critically important. Um, we phased out coal. We need the whole world to be phasing out coal. There's still countries like Australia have a lot of work to do. Um, but we also need to figure out jobs. And I've always felt this, that you, the transition has to work for everyone, which means you've got to dig deep. And you have to figure out how are people going to have good jobs while we do everything we need to do to tackle climate change. And let me be very clear, we know what we need to do. The goal is staying well below two degrees, striving for 1.5 degrees. That was negotiated in the Paris Agreement. That's the science. And so we're going to have to do our part uh, the same way every country in the world is going to have to transition as fast as possible away from fossil fuels. That's coal, that's oil and gas. So doing our part, but at the same time, you mentioned Australia. There's also, you know, the U.S. doesn't have a price on pollution either. How do we use our influence as a country to try and lean on other countries to make sure that they're coming to the plate with more ambition if we're trying to bring more ambition? Well, I think that's a, a really important point, Mike. And I, I think, you know, sometimes people say, well, why is Canada doing this? Why have we committed to phasing out coal when, say, Australia hasn't? Because you need to have credibility if you're going to go, you know, tell other countries or encourage other countries or support other countries to doing the hard things we all need to do. And so putting a price on pollution, I've been slightly encouraged um, in the United States. They're having a really tough time getting their infrastructure bill passed. But now they're thinking, well, maybe another way to get emission reductions would be a price on pollution. I've had many conversations with Americans, including Republicans. 
uh, who support a market mechanism to reduce emissions. But this is what I want to do. I mean, my focus is how do we scale ambition on climate and how can we share Canada's uh, lessons? Um, but just get real, because you're right, it is math. So first of all, we need to get the whole world off coal as fast as possible. We also need to transition off of oil and gas. And that requires a lot of work, a lot of different solutions, and ultimately everyone working together. And that's, you know, you can shame folks, but also you need to show the path because it's not that easy. Um, and I think Canada's got a great role to play uh, going into this COP. We're helping to uh, find, uh, we'll secure $100 billion per year to support developing countries because they've done the least to cause climate change and they're paying the price right now and we need to be supporting them. So there's a lot of pieces of this puzzle, but I think Canada's got a great story and maybe even a better story because it's hard for us because we do produce oil and gas um, and we've, you know, coal. And so showing that we're figuring it out and working really hard, um, I think is a really important lesson uh, for other countries in a very practical way. And as I say, that's my thing. How do we scale climate solutions all around the world? Uh, I've only got a minute for this last question, uh, and it's kind of a two-parter. So about that $100 billion for the developing nations, what happens if we don't raise that much money? And what to you uh, is a successful COP26 actually look like? Uh, well, we have to raise that money. Uh, there will be no success in COP unless there's $100 billion raised. Um, so Canada's got to dig deep. Uh, Germany's digging deep. Next week, um, well, sorry, this coming week, I'm at the UN uh, looking at how we raise ambition. Germany is there. They're the co-lead with Canada on, on raising the $100 billion. I mean, look, su success ultimately would look like we've got a path to stay well below 2 degrees, striving for 1.5. I don't think we're going to get there. But the Paris Agreement, don't lose hope. It, it requires countries to continuously raise ambition and guess what every single day around the world people are taking action on climate change so cop they're going to fold things up and and go home people will go home but people will still be acting and that's what we need to do we need to continue pushing as hard as we can all of us digging deep it's not just about governments it's about individuals it's about businesses um, and we can do it we tackled uh covid uh, we're on our way to getting out of covid it's the same thing with climate. We can do it, but we're going to have to really work extremely hard and be focused. Catherine McKenna, I appreciate you taking the time being with us. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Justin Trudeau unveils his third cabinet as prime minister this week. The swearing-in ceremony will take place on Tuesday at Rideau Hall with Canada's first Indigenous Governor General, Mary May Simon. Globalnews.ca political reporter Amanda Connolly is here to break it all down for us. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Thanks for having me. I guess the first question, it's the elephant in the room. I mean, there's no way that Harjit Sajjan can remain as defense minister, right? This really is the big thing that we're watching for right now. And again, this, is the, this has been a big problem for the government, their handling of the military sexual misconduct crisis. I spoke with one expert a couple of weeks ago saying this is effectively a sucking chest wound for the government. They just cannot seem to get it under control, to really stem the damage flowing from this. And of course, we're watching for that uh, as, as we look to the cabinet shuffle next week. Yeah, and so without naming other names, I mean, how much does the naming of the cabinet really sketch out the priorities that this government will have? Who goes where? And, you know, especially when you consider childcare, environment, those types of things. I think that's a really good question. And again, there, as you mentioned there, childcare, there's some really big items on the government agenda right now that they have to have people 
in those jobs who can actually get things done. I think first and foremost, though, you're looking really at three things that are going to factor in here. You've got the geographic representation, people from all the different regions across the country. You've got the gender balance issue, too, second, which is a big thing for the government here. They have doubled down committing to that. So we're going to watch for whether that increases the size of the cabinet here, too. And again, as you mentioned, actually getting things done. They're looking for people here, again, with the, another election possibly 18 months away, who can jump into these files, get things done, and not mess it up while doing it. And it's interesting because there are some backbenchers who have been doing well, either as parliamentary secretaries or otherwise, that have been really carrying the mail. And in a sense, they've got to promote them as well, right? Yeah, and again, this is, a, I imagine, a tricky issue for the government. You've got people who have been doing the backbench work, parliamentary secretary stuff now, for a couple of years in this government, and haven't necessarily seen the promotions that maybe they feel they're owed or that people might think they are owed. So you've got to imagine here, again, a difficult balance for the government looking at who to promote, who they're going to have to keep relying on to go out there and do a lot of this work in terms of uh, the, the TV interviews and shoring things up when there are problems for the government. And there's one thing that I thought was always interesting. There's, you know, we sort of talk about it behind the scenes and say, oh, this person for sure, they're definitely going to get one. And sometimes they get passed over either because of regional representation or for other reasons. How do you think that that's going to affect caucus morale when there are going to be people who will be passed over and then you know, they have to take up their, their role as a backbencher. Well, they're in a really challenging position right now, and that's, again, because we had this, we just had this election. They did not get the majority that a lot of people think they, they, were, they were looking for with that decision, right? So they, they obviously are going to have a limited time frame here. They're going to be looking to really make an impact. And with that, you need your caucus to work together. You have to have that cohesion, that ability to get things done and to have that, that strong um, cohesive unity in, in the caucus itself to present a united front to Canadians. Because you can really upset some people if they get left off. Again. Absolutely. It's just one of those interesting uh, dynamics that thankfully you or I don't have to do. We can just sit here and talk about it, right? That's the best part, right? <laughs> Thanks so, so much for this, Amanda. Really appreciate it. Well, that's our show for today, everyone. Thanks so much for spending your time with us. Mercedes Stevenson will be back next Sunday. For the West Block, I'm Mike LeCouture.